You're listening to the Ulster Rugby Roundup, the now two-thirds safe Ulster Rugby Roundup, because two-thirds of this week's podcast have got their COVID jabs already. I'm the odd one out, Adam McKendry, in the host chair for you this week, but safe from getting sick are Jonathan Bradley. Hi, how's it going? And Richard Mulligan. Hello, everybody. Good to be back again. <laughs> yes, of course, we are here to talk rugby, and what a disappointing week it is to be talking rugby. I, I kind of want to title this week's podcast based on a question that we got from MPC where he simply said what now because Ulster are out of the challenge cup having been beaten by Leicester Tigers last week which we will take up most of the podcast chatting about they're on the brink of elimination from the Rainbow Cup going to Toman Park to take on Munster this week and there's just a general sense of when will this trophy dry to end? Richard, I'm, I'm going to start with you because you were actually there. Look, it was good to be there again. And I mean, I'm, uh, the biggest disappointment is I had planned to maybe join Jonathan and the author stakes by maybe doing a, a European Challenge Cup successful story on Ulster, um, given the way that I've been fortunate to go to all their knockout games. And we all got a bit excited when it was Twickenham. Certainly, I got excited when it was Twickenham, thinking, yep, there's another one I can jump on a train and go up the road mm-hmm. to. And, and confidence was reasonably good going into it. Although, I will calm it down by saying that I wasn't, I mean, Jonathan can back me up on this, I wasn't overly confident when I saw the teams been announced and all the rest of it. But um, at halftime, I thought, yep, we're looking good here. And there was a fellow Irish journalist who was with Sky um, online who was there, and we kind of felt, we both had a bit of a chat at halftime and said, yep, looking quite good here. And then it all went rather south after half time. I thought the selection initially perhaps wasn't quite what I thought it was going to be. And I think that may have had a factor on it. John Cooney's injury at half or just three minutes into the second half, coupled with Steve Brothwick making three big changes in the pack, changed things dramatically. And then bringing on Ben Young's and then George Ford decides he's going to show why he is England's out half. And it was all rather disappointing. And the season basically ended on Friday night for Ulster. I mean, the Rainbow Cup's still to come, but you know what? That that was an opportunity badly missed by Ulster, and it's, it's it's so disappointing once again for them. Picking up on that selection talk, I mean, Reedy and Lowry on the bench were sort of the two big ones. I can understand Addison being left on the bench given how long he's been out for, but Lowry on the bench was a massive call given how well he's played this season. It's nothing against Ethan McElroy, who is a very talented player, but I, I really would have thought that Jacob Stockdale would have started on the wing and you would have put Lowry back to 15. That was what I thought, and, and given the way Ulster started that game and the way they were playing the multi-phases and trying to get the ball wide, I think uh, Michael Lowry's dancing feet could have uh, really made an impact on that and stopped it on the wing. I just I just feel they could have, if you had known the way they were going to start as they did, then that probably was the selection. I wouldn't even have had Will Addison on the bench. You know, I mean, if you're if you're going to bring Will Addison in, you either start him or don't involve him at all, given that he's just coming back and, and where Ulster had been against the Saints and all the rest of it. Um, Sean Reddy, he's a big ball carrier. And you talk about physicality, he's he's the kind of player you need to have have on in that situation. But look, I'm not going to question Dan McFarland's reasoning. Um, not that I'm scared of him or anything, but I just I just feel on this occasion, they got it wrong a wee bit. Don O'Reilly asks, Ulster struggling against Leicester's physicality. How do they address that? What do we make of the physicality, especially in that second half? Yeah, well, I mean, that's the important caveat to add, isn't it? Because you're saying in the second half. So mm. it's not that Ulster got overpowered in the entirety of the game like was their physicality a problem when they were 11 points and should have been 18 points up at half time no it wasn't Ulster's superiority was such over the, the first 40 minutes of that game 
that to me it wasn't like Leinster against La Rochelle where you're looking at it and saying yes Leinster had a purple patch at the start of that game but in reality it was La Rochelle's game for probably 65 of the 80 minutes like Ulster were so superior in that first 40 minutes so it wasn't like they were too small in the first half and that would be the only thing that would drive me away from saying that it was purely a case of Leicester were bigger or Leicester had the physicality of, you know, a couple of big Pumas and a, a couple of big South Africans and uh, Ellis Genge. So to me, and the only reason I'm saying this is because I wouldn't want to simply chalk it up to, well, Ulster are smaller, so they couldn't win that game because they could. So for me, you have to look at something else. And for me, if you have a game, look, I know that momentum can change. I know we saw it in the last round in reverse with Ulster against Northampton. But to me, when the two halves of rugby are that dramatically different, then it's not so much about physical attributes so much as it is either mental attributes or tactical attributes. You can point to the injury of John Cooney, but I think to simply chalk it up to, well, they're bigger, so we were never going to be able to beat them. When you have 40 minutes of evidence to show that you had found a way to beat them, you just didn't see it through. I think that would be dangerous because that gets you into a sort of discourse that we have around Leinster when Ulster lose to Leinster. And it's like, whenever they lose to them, it's like, well, what, what do you expect? They were always going to lose. I agree with you, Johnny. And I mean, for 40 minutes, Ulster were completely dominant in that. I mean, they were, and I think a lot of that had to do with the fact that they were on front football and they, and they were getting there and, and, and Leicester maybe underestimated Ulster a little bit. Um, it was surprising to me how actually Ulster had got on top in that first half. Um, it was pleasing as well, um, obviously. But when Cooney went off, the kicking game seemed to dip. And I think that was a crucial factor in it. Um, there were too many mistakes made. Ben Youngs and George Ford put Leicester in better places. And when you're and then they were on the front, they were on the front foot and getting there and they were getting to the collisions quicker, maybe, um, and winning the ball that Ulster had been winning in the first half. I thought I thought Ben Youngs was possibly their biggest sub in the second half because the pace yeah. just picked up massively whenever he came on. Maybe that's down to Kyle Brink's added influence in the back row, possibly. But I thought Youngs everything just seemed a hundred percent quicker. I mean, I just think the breaks, the, you know the breakdown sped up so much for them in terms of getting to the breakdown and distributing the ball, which is what Ulster had done well in the first half. Like Ulster's as much as Leicester's pace. Rose and it's probably tempting to say, you know, Leicester went in at half time, got the hairdryer treatment, and came out a different side. And to a degree, they did, but our focus is upon Ulster. So it's, you know, what happened to slow their ruck speed? What happened to their arrival at the ruck? What happened to the options off the nine? What happened to the tactics that just saw the nine? As much as the kicking was too long to be contestable and just allowed Freddie Stewart to, re- Stewart to really boss that game in the second half. I, th- I suppose even if the kicks had been contestable, you could and would still ask why did Ulster go away from what was working for them in the first half. Richard Townswell asks, what did you make of the Ulster's, Ulster players' reaction when their tactics weren't working? And I think this is more a bigger question of how much is down to the coaches in terms of tactics and how rigidly do you stick to the plan that you've been given until you get 
instructions to say otherwise and how much responsibility is on players to say this isn't working we need to change things up because it's undoubtable that Ulster changed their tactics in the second half whether that was because they were trying to defend the lead or whether it was because John Cooney went off we don't know but where does that responsibility lie is it players should be rigidly following instructions or is it players should take responsibility and change things up on the pitch as they see fit I think you saw if you go back to the Northampton Saints game and you saw at half time and I think I even asked this question at one of the press conferences saying to Dan you know you must have confidence that the players came in at half time against Saints and they knew exactly what they needed to do you think to yourself right did the coach I mean we don't know if the coaches I don't, I don't think Ulster changed changed their tactics at half time I just think Leicester came out and and did things better and then you had the Cooney and I think the Cooney thing Mentally, they had seen one of their key players going down and he was knocked out for, for a while. And I, I think that did have a wee bit of an impact on it. It, 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 shouldn't, have a, it, it shouldn't have changed as things dramatically as they did. But this time, Ulster just, the players didn't seem to be able to say, right, look, we need to change what we're doing here. It's not going as we need to. And they needed to maybe regroup a wee bit and say, look, how can we stop Esther doing what they're doing to us? You put it, I think you've got to put it down to the players. On this occasion, you know, you've got to put it down to the senior players and say, look, they should have been able to pinpoint something as they did against Northampton. They knew exactly what they had to do against Northampton and they came out and they did it so well. And they just weren't able to this time. Yeah, I mean, there's a there's a huge value that has to be placed on problem solving on the fly in situations like this. And like the wider implication of the Cooney injury, I suppose, is the use of the squad throughout the season and just how difficult a balance that is because... If we think, you know, it's only eight months since Matheson started a Pro 14 final for Ulster, but equally, he's not played an awful lot recently. Like, he's only made three starts since that Pro 14 final. And it's a real difficult balance for any coach, I think, because Cooney is obviously their best scrum half and their first choice scrum half. But when something like that happens, it's obviously with the benefit of hindsight, you go back and say, well, was Matheson prepared enough? Was he embedded in the system enough? Had he had enough opportunities to shake off the rust? You know, if he was getting 20 minutes a game, say, in the build-up to this game, rather than, you know, I think he came off, you know, one minute against Northampton. You know, we saw Shanahan play in the, in the league game, or sorry, the Rainbow Cup game. You know, so was Matheson put in a position to succeed there and look as i've said hindsight's twenty twenty, so it's easy to sit here after the fact and talk about something that we weren't talking about earlier in the season but like you know ricky asked dan the question about matheson and dan's response was albie matheson's a good player which obviously he is because he's capped by the all blacks yes. Yes. you know so again you don't i wouldn't want to fall into the trap of just saying cooney went off Matheson come on and again that's just your summation of what went wrong because then you're not really you know you're not going to look then and say well what do we do better the next time that we're in this position and it, that might be not the next time that they're in a semi-final but two or three weeks before the semi-final have you made sure that all of your squad have enough minutes that if they have to play in the crunch that they're ready and as well prepared to do it as they can be. Yeah, I think Dan maybe misunderstood my question, or maybe it was the way I put it. I wasn't sure if the lawnmowers up were cutting the grass straight after the game were coming through on the Zoom call, but you got you got the dreaded short answer. <laughs> yeah, you know, and I thought, and I wanted to, 
I wanted to enlarge on it, and then I thought, nah, it's probably this is probably not the time to be enlarging mm. on it, you know. Well, when you're only getting one question at the minute, you can't really ask uh, <laughs> yeah. a follow-up. If you, <laughs> if you get the one-line answer, no. that's you snookered. Yes, <laughs> you have to be In so times of Zoom. But, um, and I mean, I wasn't making the point that it was, it certainly wasn't the fact that Albison, Albie Matthewson had lost in the game. That wasn't the situation. And that wasn't what I was trying to put, that wasn't what I was trying to put across. But if you look at the, if you look at the two substitutions of Scrum Hat, well, one was tactical and one was enforced. It had a pretty dramatic impact on the game as a whole to a degree, you know. But as you, but you're right, Johnny, it, it didn't, it wasn't the reason why Leicester won and why Ulster lost. Yeah, I think we've got to try and divert away from that narrative because there were so many other factors surrounding it that yeah. it wasn't just... Well, that's it. You know, there's myriad, re- there's myriad reasons for any game going the way it does. But especially when you're talking about shipping 20 unanswered points and losing a half of rugby 27-7, like a lot of things mm-hmm. have to go wrong when you are... And I know some people disagree with this, but when you are the better rugby team, because I believe that Ulster are a better rugby team than Leicester. So to lose a half of rugby, 27 to 7, to give up 27 points in a half of rugby, a lot of things have to be going awry at that stage. And again, that's why I would just be looking at all of these things, not in a simple boxing it off and saying that's the reason, because you're not going to learn from that. You're not going to evolve from that. And whether it's mental, whether it's tactical, whether it's personnel, like... I think this is a dramatic enough loss that you have to be making sure that you learn from it in a tangible and effective way, not in the way that you, players in the post-Joe Schmidt era come out after every game and say there's learnings because, you know, sales are lost to whomever in the Pro 14. I know that's not a good example because they didn't lose to anybody but Leinster in the Pro 14, but you know what I'm saying. That's not going to have a profound effect on the way that somebody approaches the game in six months, seven months, eight months' time, whereas I think this loss is important enough that you do have to make sure that whatever way you break this down, whatever way you review it, the next time that you're in a game of this magnitude, that you are taking those lessons and putting them into play. Johnny, in that vein of what you were talking about there, you did a piece on uh, on Monday saying that this was sort of akin to the Saracens' defeat at home in the quarterfinal and... Uh, the Pro 14 or the Pro 12 as it was then final defeat the following year where do you think this does rank in terms of disappointments in knockout games for Ulster I suppose I would separate the two more than anything else because the two eras if you like because that 13-14 team is massively different but that was a team and some people disagree with this, but this is my honestly held opinion. That team could very well have won the European Cup because I don't think that Toulon team was as good as people remember it actually being that particular year. And Saracens thumped Claremont. And I think having gone six from six from the pool, like people forget how big an achievement that was. And because they lost that quarterfinal and it really sort of knocked the stuffing out of the season and then you had situation with the FOA court missing the domestic games towards the end of the season. So that 14 team that didn't win anything, like I genuinely believe that was one of the two, if not the best team in Europe that season. And you never got to see it do anything else because that team was breaking up at the end of that year. But like really the only people that were involved in that were Herring and Handy. Is that is that right? Yeah. 
right yeah, yeah. i'm not if, forgetting if you, anybody obviously. if you look at the longer or the wider squad you could say craig gilroy as well but yeah 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 so to answer your question in a very long-winded way adam this is the first loss of this type and that's why i wrote about it this is the first loss of this type that this team and this coaching staff has had where genuinely i think they will know that they should have won silverware they should have won this competition they were the best team in this competition and they didn't have domestic distractions like some of the other teams in this competition and that to me will be harder to stomach i think for them in the same way that the 13 team came away thinking that they were the best team in the league and didn't win the league because of playing the final in the RDS and still losing a game they could have won in the RDS and the 14 team with Jared Red Card. This team now has that type of loss on their resume and it's a different thing to deal with. I think you saw in the way that the players looked at the end of the game, I think you saw in the way that Ian Henderson spoke certainly on TV that it was a different type of loss to digest rather than saying, yes, we're better than Edinburgh but we're not better than Leinster and we know that and here's the proof or yes we're better than Bath and Harlequins but we're not better than Toulouse and there was the proof so that's why I'm talking about lessons because if you're talking about a young squad which this now is really and has become younger and younger over the past three years and a coaching staff where I suppose as of next season everybody will be in their first time at that job now I know like you're talking three years, four years in that job, but it's everybody's first position in the role that they're doing, if you know what I mean. So while I think it's cliche and I think people get frustrated about the, we'll use this next year, I think this is the type of thing that they can and have to use next year, that kind of disappointment of not achieving what certainly I think they should have done and what I would imagine the players themselves think that they should have done. I, yeah, Jonathan, I, I agree with you. I'm, this is where you're seeing a team like in 2014 that can actually win, that, that, that you have the expectation that they will actually deliver with a trophy at the end of the season. And this opportunity that they had will will really, really hurt. And you saw that on Dan McFarland when he said about, you know, it's going to take a long time to get over this and it will take them a long time to get over this. But I also think it's not, it's not a stepping stone as such, but, and I mean, you saw that when I asked Ian Henderson about the progress that decided me and he said no we hadn't made progress tonight and and, and on the game was right but they have made progress and if you look at it they've got to a semi-final now where they got to a quarter-final in Europe before albeit Challenge Cup whatever you want to call it I think it's just I think this year in Europe that was very different as, as we've discussed before and it's now that they have to make sure that when they come in next season whatever happens they have to be in that better place and they've got to learn from this disappointment this one's going to hurt the most I think of all the ones that Dan McFarland has had and I still believe he and the current era are the ones that can deliver a trophy, even though you might think after the chance that they had, oh, right, maybe not. But I really do believe that this is the this is the era that will win a trophy and it will not be the Rainbow Cup either. And I think probably the biggest frustration for them is that they are likely going to have 11 months until they play another knockout game because yeah. unless they get to the final of the Rainbow Cup, the next knockout game that they'll have ideally is in the Champions Cup quarterfinals next season or however that's going to be formatted. I know that they're talking about that behind the scenes. So there's not even the case of you're going to be able to get back on the horse and you've got a knockout game coming up in a few weeks' time. I suppose the interesting thing here is and, and if you look at Europe this year and the way it was, and Ulster were rightly probably named as, as 
as favourites to possibly win the the Challenge Cup when the quarter final when the round of sixteen and the quarterfinals were known. How would Ulster have done in the Champions Cup if they had been in the quarterfinals of that? And I don't think Ulster would have I don't think Ulster would have been good enough to win the Champions Cup this year. You know, but that's and, why and this not, is so frustrating, and, and I think that's what people have probably alluded to in a lot of the questions. Like this was an opportunity that they won't have again. Like you won't have well, sorry, touch wood all being well, you're not going to outright qualify for the Challenge Cup uh, <laughs> unless you have a disaster domestically the year before. So you're not going to have a chance to win silverware without beating a team that is a superpower. And like this sounds like I'm very down on Leicester or Montpellier or Bath or Northampton. And it's not. It's just that they are not Leinster, La Rochelle, Saracens, Rassing, Toulouse, you know? You, you can throw the bulls and the sharks into that mix in the coming yep. season as well, domestically. You know, monster even, you know. To win a trophy next year, you're going to have to get through a lot of these teams. So it's going to be a much bigger jump to win silverware next year um, than it would have been this year. Whereas this year, winning this competition would have been seen as a catalyst to take the next step forward rather than the arrival at the ultimate goal, which is what winning the pro. 16 or obviously in the unlikely event the European Cup would be in the future. You know, you look at the evolution of Leicester um, with Steve Brothwick came in February last year. They're probably 18 months behind where Ulster are. When you consider where Ulster were a couple of years ago and you see Leicester are now playing in a European Challenge Cup final and you're, you're kind of going, that really should have been Ulster. That's where we were going to in our evolution and why have Leicester got the right to be contesting that you know and, and I think that's what makes this so hard to take I never felt I try not to get emotional at games but I never felt so flat after a game of rugby as I did on Friday night and it wasn't because yeah I'm going to Twickenham I was going to go up to, go up to Twickenham for a European Challenge Cup final it's because I've watched this Ulster side over the years so often come so close and here was an opportunity that they they really blew and um, I, I never felt so flat after a game uh taking out the impartiality of it, you know. Um, I just feel that this was such a golden opportunity. And it, as Jonathan says, it's going to be a while and it's going to be harder for them to win a trophy next time around. Ryan C asks on Twitter, what do you make of Ulster's mental block when the pressure increases? Do you think the favourites tag had any influence on this? I don't know so much if it was the favourites tag or... I suppose, because, you know, they haven't always been the favourites in these big games, but there does seem to be a big game block. Uh, because, it, no disrespect to Edinburgh, but the only team that they've beaten in one of these big games is the team with arguably a bigger mental block over them than Ulster have. And one, one of those teams had to lose um, last September. So this is, you know, we've asked players about this. Henderson's asked about it on... Friday night and said potentially yes there is a mental block it's something that's been spoken about but until we find a way to get over that hurdle we're not going to know what we've done that's right if you follow um, I so I think looking at it from the outside when something like that happens and again you're making the distinction between this game and previous games where they've been beaten by a better team you would say that yes there was definitely a mental block where when almost on the cusp of doing what they've spoken about doing for these past three years, everything that had got them to that point just evaporated underneath them. 
yeah, it was interesting listening to Ian about it, and you could see, and you do start to to wonder: is it is it a mental thing that? that well, you look at Lan, um, if you look at Leinster, I mean, they lost a semi final. They didn't make the Champions Cup final last time round either, um, but they've won it four times before, and yet they're winning the Pro Fourteen. But then it's a very different, it's a very different beast. And then you look at the Northampton game. And it was an opportunity, but they were they were behind, and yet they were able to come back in that one really, really well. And you wonder how much of it really does come down to self belief. And did Ulster maybe come come in at half time and come out in the second half against Leicester, thinking they had maybe mentally they had they had got it right, and and then it just because things changed, they weren't able to adapt. I don't know. It's if you look back at the previous years, even back to 2012, 2014. Was that mental block still there too? It's it's a difficult one, and mentally winning, I suppose, if you if you win something, it increases your chances of doing it again, as they keep telling us. But they just haven't got over that hurdle yet. Well, and I think we will leave that there, and uh, <laughs> after that wonderfully positive outlook going forward for Ulster, we'll leave Leicester in the uh, rearview mirror and move on. Looking ahead then to this week, it's sort of like the morning after the night before because you don't quite know what to make of the trip to Toman Park to face Munster in the Rainbow Cup. Dan said in his post-match after Leicester that French players will get a chance to impress. He's looking forward to seeing some of the guys who haven't had much game time this season to try and put their hand up. What do we make of this game? Because it does sort of seem like an afterthought. We, I think there was a general consensus that if Ulster had beaten Leicester, then it would be the under-12s would head down the road and everyone would be wrapped in cotton wool for uh, the final in a few weeks. But now you're looking at it as this is Ulster's last chance to win silverware until a year from now. So how are we expecting Ulster to approach this game now in the context of having lost last week? Well, Dan McFarland's already said that he's going to give people who haven't had game time an opportunity for game time. They've already lost. They're not going to win this competition. It doesn't seem like they particularly care about it, which is their wants. They targeted the two competitions that were there. As much as the Ulster Connick game was very entertaining for the neutral and as much as the PR machine says that the Rainbow Cup's a great competition, like there's nothing to say that Don McFarland, <laughs> there's no law or regulation that Don McFarland has to care about it. I'm looking forward to a plethora more captain's challenge and goal line dropouts this week. I think, I suppose the thing about the Rainbow Cup is, from Ulster's perspective, yes, they lost to Connacht. Munster beat Leinster. So Leinster have already lost a game in it. Munster have already won one game. So if Ulster were to actually win this weekend, does that then put them right back in contention to maybe get to a final? You know, it's... The only thing is, it's not just you know, it's not just the Irish teams because the Irish teams have dominated the Pro 14 to such a degree. But like, you know, how many games are? (laughs) I know this sounds ridiculous given the Pro 14 form, but how many games are Benetton going to lose? Yes, (laughs) they've jumped Glasgow and they've got Zebra to play twice now. Now Zebra were better than them in the regular season, so that's you know you have to add that caveat. But like, even Edinburgh, like if Glasgow are as disinterested as they seem to be, like. You know, Edinburgh could be going into the second half of the competition with three wins. So Ulster would have to do something they haven't done since 2014 in winning Thoman Park, something they haven't done since 2013 
in winning the RDS. And even that might not be enough. So as much as, you know, maybe it's a master plan. Dan's looking back to that 2014 game and saying, well, it was the uh, it was the Ravens that won that time. So maybe it makes sense. I don't think that's the reality. I don't think he's particularly fussed about the outcome of this competition. And I think we will see more than a handful of players that we haven't seen a lot of over the past eight months, over these next, whatever it is, six weeks. I agree with you, Johnny. You've actually sold it to me there. I think the majority of players who played against Saints and against Leicester just need to have a complete sit down and rest this weekend. And, and I don't mean mull over what happened, but just give them a break. And I do want to see our future players coming through so that they get the necessary game time so that if next year Ulster are in a quarterfinal of a Champions Cup and a semi or playoff in the Pro 16 or whatever way they're going to do it all, that those players, if they're if they're needed at that time, and, it's, and at the end of a season, you don't know who you're going to need because injuries and things, the rest of it, they're that bit more ready to play in bigger games. And Munster's still a big game. It's an inter-pro. You've got Leinster the following week. Give guys a run out. Give them a try. Let us see what we have. And the result is not important. I think you're absolutely right. And wouldn't it be great to see Benetton playing Dragons in the final of the Rainbow Cup Northern Hemisphere? Just just to let them have a flavour of what it's like to play to play in big knockout games. I mean, but between them, I think their jerseys epitomise Rainbow Cup. So it would be the fitting final. Yeah, um, I don't know. Uh, I don't know what date the finals on, but I can tell you now, I would be doing something else that day. <laughs> Big Jim asks, which players can make a step up a la Nick Timoney next season? And I think I'm going to include the remainder of the Rainbow Cup in this because we're going to see guys getting a chance here. So this is sort of their first opportunity to make a step up and then potentially take that into next season. Who do we think could be in line to really do themselves a massive boost for their chances to get more game time next season? It's a good question, but I think that it's almost a different profile, if you know what I mean. So like Nick Timoney, like everybody knew who Nick Timoney was. He's just taken his game to a new level this year and become one of the team's most important players over the last five months. Um, well, I think so, that's what... Like, I would put Timoney and James Hume and Mike Laurie in that bracket of players that went from good, promising young players to players that are now seem like they're central to the starting 15 so you're really talking about guys there that are sort of like 23 24 that sort of age i suppose i think think that's what i think that's what big jim's asking is there anybody who is sort of a a good player now or considered a good player now that could step up into a more prominent role off the back of the rainbow cup or going into next season so i'm thinking of someone like the profile of greg jones who has been in squads he's been on the bench a few times if he got a few games in the Rainbow Cup, could he play himself into a few big starts next season? I Greg think Jones is one of the players that I think that he hasn't got an awful lot of opportunity. But when he gets to maybe a, a run of games, he can. I think he's he's underrated to a degree. I think David McCann's another one that they like. And, and unfortunately, Cormac is one, it's, it's so unfortunate that he's injured because this would have been a great opportunity for him to get a real run of games starting. And I think Ethan McElroy will benefit immensely from, I know it's probably not the profile you're talking about, Adam, but those are players that come to my mind. That, But Greg Jones is a good example. I think I would like to see a lot of him in the Rainbow Cup. I actually think the best example of somebody that 
and probably the player that Ulster most need to make that jump between somebody that we know is a good player and somebody that's played a lot. And this might seem like slightly left field because they've played so much and they've been in Ireland squads. But I think that person's Tom O'Toole. If you're talking about somebody going from somebody that has had a fair amount of exposure to the senior squad, but making that jump into being one of the side's most important players, I think it's O'Toole. And with the best will in the world, and again, I note that this is strange because he's been in Ireland squads. He's only really been Ulster's first choice tight head for like, a three or four week span really coming out of lockdown. And then it's been Marty Moore. I think we've seen with the absence of Jack McGrath and Eric O'Sullivan and how much Eric O'Sullivan has had to play. And even just, you know, if you're talking about Ulster making strong starts and then falling away a wee bit in games at times, the importance of having two players for every top five position or front five position, sorry, is massive. And Tom O'Toole is there at the minute in that he is a good bench option but you know you look at <laughs> to use the example again you look at Leinster and you look at La Rochelle and you know Leinster have two guys that are tipped to be Lions this week in their tight head positions so just because Ulster have Marty Murr and Marty Murr's been a very good player and a great signing for them for Tom O'Toole to push on and become that player of the level of importance that we've seen from Timoney from Laurie from Hume would be a massive boost going into next season just whenever we've mentioned Timoney, I think it's very interesting how the coaches will manage the squad because you've still got guys who will be pushing for Ireland spots in the summer. It's not really like any of those guys, to be honest. Do you know what I mean? Like, well, I, th- I think Timoney's in. I think if there if there are games this summer, I think Timoney's got to get a call up. I think he's been really impressive since. <laughs> I mean, we, we keep saying it's is a bit of a coincidence, but I I think since Kutsia and I see he was going, I think Timoney's basically just stepped up into that number eight jersey and said, this is mine. Yeah, but like, you know, Stander's not going to be there. Um, you would hope that Doris is going to be there. I don't know what the situation with Connor's injury is, but, you know, there's going to be guys that are away with the Lions, especially the centers. You know, if Robbie Henshaw and um, Gary Ringrose are with the Lions, does James Hume get a cap? Like it would not, it would not surprise me at all if Ulster have five debutants in that uh, in that USA game. Genuinely, it wouldn't. Balakin, Laurie, Hume, Timoney, O'Toole. I'd love to expand on that, but we're running out of time, so we'll leave that for another podcast. Lions squad is going to be announced on Thursday. From an Ulster perspective, who do we think will make it? I've got four players noted down as possibles which is Ian Henderson, Jacob Stockdale, Rob Herring, and John Cooney. How many of them do we think are making it, if any? I think Henderson should should be included. The John Cooney one's a really interesting one, and it's, it's gathered a bit of traction after the weekend, um, following his performance against Leicester before he unfortunately went off, and, and, and how he's been this season consistent. It would be fantastic if John Cooney made it. I don't know. Rob Herring is another one who I think his darts are good. He's been very consistent this year. Stockdale, I'm not 100% sure of. I know Gregor Townsend was there on Friday night watching them. But um, I think you'll definitely get Henderson in there. Definitely. Yeah, I would agree. I think Henderson will uh, will go. I think he'd be massively unlucky if, uh, if he wasn't included. Is that uh, really the fourth lock? I think Cooney should go. I'm not sure that he will. I think it'll be Murray. I think it'll be Garrett Davis. 
And I would just have a sneaking suspicion that that third spot might go to Danny Kerr. Interesting. So you're going with someone who isn't in a national squad, but isn't John Cooney? If you're going to get someone from outside the Six Nations squads, I think it's going to be at number nine or it's going to be at number eight. And I just think, especially with Ben Youngs having made himself unavailable over the weekend. Yeah, I could be wrong. It could be Ali Price, you know. But I just think maybe the reading of the tea leaves, looking at how far out it looked like they were watching Danny Kerr. Now, they could have been watching other Harlequins players. We know that it's also been reported that they were keeping an eye on Marcus Smith. But I would just be inclined to think they've maybe had their eye on Danny Kerr from just a little bit further out, maybe. Cooney, I think, is unlucky. If he had been involved in the Six Nations, which just seems like, I suppose, you know, we did that interview with Jordan Murphy last week and he used that phrase, you know, face doesn't fit. And that does, I guess, seem to be where we're at with John Cooney in Ireland at the minute, Um, which is not to say that he wouldn't have been Gatlin's type of scrum half, but I just, he maybe just hasn't had that same exposure that Kerr has had because it certainly seems like the Lions coaches have had more eyeballs on the Premiership. And, you know, I put Stockdale in that boat. You know, Stockdale missed the wrong Six Nations. You know, he never really missed any consistent amount of Ireland games. But I think it would be a stretch to pick him now on the basis of the last year when you look at somebody, say, like, Duhan van der Merwe, who was available for that Six Nations, or any of the Welsh wings that um, Gatlin might choose. And then you throw in, you know, the likes of Anthony Watson, as well, he's somebody that I'm sure is going to go in that back three, plus, yeah. you know, Liam Williams, you know, so... Liam Williams, yeah. I'm going to throw my weight in behind Henderson making it. I think Herring's a dark horse here. Like, he's he's not your flashy standout hooker, uh, like Jamie George would be, you know, with big carries, but Herring is so dependable. Hooker is a position that I think you just, you do just want the dependable option if you are able to get a reliable seven out of ten performance then you're happy and you move on and the thing is Ireland trust him to make the tackles they trust him to be that jackling threat so I'm gonna I'm gonna say he sneaks in as the third hooker that's maybe along a with, call along with Ken Owens because I know Gatlin likes him and say Luke Kyan Dickey I know George could easily go, but I wonder how much his lack of game time this season has harmed his chances. By the end of it, I think Herring had had the best Six Nations out of those hookers, certainly right up there with Ken Owens. Everyone else had very sort of transient Six Nations championships, like they were chopping and changing at hooker. Scotland certainly were, and then England, I suppose, between having two first-choice hookers, you almost don't have a first-choice hooker, if that makes sense. But I would just go back to that idea, I suppose, of credit in the bank. Like, I just think Jamie George, with Gatland, especially having been on that last tour, just has enough credit in the bank, enough familiarity. Hooker was one of those positions that I think if you were playing in the Champions Cup and had have taken a real, real run at it, I think you could have forced your way in because it was slightly up in the air. But in the absence of that, I just think Gatland will go with, I just think he'll go with what he knows, which I think is Ken Owens. Jimmy George and I think Luke Luke Kyan Dickey gets in there as well. Another listener question came in from Glenn Wilmond. He asks, even after a hugely disappointing Friday night, can we still say with so few trophies up for grabs, this still feels like it was a successful season for Ulster? If anything, there were more trophies up for grabs this year because we had the Pro 12, the Rainbow Cup, 
the Champions Cup and the Challenge Cup. Wasn't that the thing? Wasn't that right? Billy Burns has scored in all four of them. Yeah, (laughs) only player to score in all four of them. I I suppose you can look at this question a few ways. From an on-pitch performance perspective, from an on-pitch development perspective, and then from a success wins perspective, how would you guys see it? Yeah, like I think it's it's an interesting way to look at it because I think, you know, like, Ian and Stephen were having a sort of con- a good conversation about the level of expectation just in the thread of those listener questions and how if your expectation isn't that Ulster should be better than whoever wins the Pro 14 and whoever wins the Champions Cup, then you can't write it off as a bad season if they don't. But as I've said before, I think that they should have won the Challenge Cup, so that's disappointing. And they didn't. Br- I don't think they broke new ground this year. And I think that's the way that I would probably judge it in relation to certainly on the pitch. Like I know that if supporters are talking about, you know, expectation and their experience of going to games or their engagement with the team and stuff all plays into it. But like from our perspective, just looking at it in an on-pitch fashion, the expectation is that they take a sizable step forward. So in that first year, they took a sizable step forward in winning games away in Europe, getting to a quarterfinal pushing Leinster all the way in that quarterfinal, and that was a step forward in the same way that last season, winning that knockout game away at Edinburgh and getting to a Pro 14 final was a step forward. And the opportunity for them to take a step forward and make it a good season this time around was to win the Challenge Cup in the same way that, you know, I suppose a European semi-final or getting their final domestically and making it a more competitive game than it had been the last time, bridging that gap to Leinster when they're full strength would have been a step forward. And so they haven't taken that tangible step forward. And that's why I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to call it a plateau because a plateau makes it out to be a longer period than it is, I suppose. But certainly it's a pause in what had been an almost uninterrupted upward curve over the past three years. But equally like to go back to what big James question was with Timoney, like, that's your positive from the season. The fact that Timoney, Hume and Larry have become massively important players. And next year you probably need like Tom O'Toole and Stuart Moore and Ethan McElroy to become among your most important players. You know, you've got Balakoon and Addison back. So that's a big boost for next season. Then you want to be seeing where we saw Izuchuku and McCann and... McGoy coming through, you you want to be seeing Duke. You really want to be seeing Duke because obviously with Matheson not being here, he's going to be the third choice scrum half. You really want to see Tom Stewart because with Adam McBurney not being here, you know, it's is it Tom Stewart or is it Bradley Roberts is going to be that third choice hooker. So that I suppose that's how you can measure progress in a more intangible sense, but it's certainly not the same degree of progress that we'd seen the past two years. So that would be why I mean, I wouldn't say that I see it as a negative season, but I don't see it as a, I don't see it as a positive season either. And obviously, all of this is weighed against the fact that he hasn't played in so long that he's almost been forgotten already. But next season, you are losing your best player, like as good as, or however good Nakawara may be. And I've, whenever it was first announced, we talked about it in this podcast that I was skeptical enough about it as a guarantee, as more uh, taking a flyer on a player with a massive, massive upside, um, but albeit one with that comes as a risk. So next season, in order to make a leap, you're having, you are having to compensate that. Like, as I say, 
Timoney, the way that he's played, I think has certainly factored into the fact that people haven't mentioned it that much. And then the fact that he hasn't played really an awful lot of rugby at all, I suppose, since it was announced that he was leaving is factored into it as well. But it's still something that when you're looking at next season as things that have to be overcome, that is still certainly a, a big block to making substantial progress next year. Like not an awful lot of teams lose their best player and get better. Just to, just to provide a little bit of context before I let Richard uh, give his response uh, for that, uh, Johnny mentioned Ian and Stephen having a having a chat on Twitter. Ian asked, "Are the expectations of long suffering fans too great?" And Stephen then responded to that, saying, "Ulster is a small place with a limited supply of talent, especially big units. We will never be as rich as top English or French clubs to fund as many of the best players in the world as them. Are we punching out or indeed above our weight?" I just want to see them performing to the max for 80 minutes. Richard, where would you sort of rank this season? What Jonathan said. <laughs> no, a lot of what Jonathan said, I totally agree with him. And I know Ian and Stephen are, 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 are big fans of the podcast as well. And I say hello to the both of them. I know them well. I've had some good chats with them on PMs. But I recall a conversation with Jonathan as we were trying to find the stoop one time and Dan McFarland had said that week that Ulster wouldn't be a team in the top eight of Europe. And we had the discussion around. And as we walked around, as we tried to navigate the streets, we came to the conclusion that at that stage, and this is, this is the start of Dan, Dan McFarland's tenure, that he was actually right. Ulster wouldn't have been one of the eight teams at that time. You would have said, yeah, you know what? You would expect them to get to the quarterfinals, irrespective of what the, the pool draws are. I think Ulster have probably progressed enough to say that they probably are one of the best eight in Europe, even without success. And Jonathan's 100% right. Not winning this Challenge Cup this particular season has put an awful big dent on on how things have panned out this year. Um, and he's probably right. They're, they're on a level. And, and it was interesting, I think, one of the, the listeners PM me to say, was Dan McFarlane's honeymoon period over? I think Dan McFarlane's honeymoon period been over for a while now. And I think there will come a bit more pressure on him now that um, he has to deliver. Replacing Marcel Kutsia is is huge. And I think Na- Nakawara is probably not the player to say, look, he's he's the big name signing. He's going to do that. Ian Henderson, we asked him about, I asked him, had, did he see this as being progress this year? And he says, yes, they had, but not, on, not obviously against Leicester. They're probably on a level at the moment. It's going to get harder for them. I think we've seen the emergence of some players coming through. And, and, and again, Jonathan mentioned them and David McCann and Stuart Moore and Ethan McElroy making the next step. And is that winning a trophy or is that making the Champions Cup semi-finals next year or final? I don't know. I don't want to be down on them just because they lost the Challenge Cup semi-final, but they probably haven't been as successful as they would have hoped to be this year. And I think that's... You're looking at it negatively that way. I don't think it's unreasonable to say that they haven't been as successful as they wanted to be because if you're saying that they're one of the top eight teams in Europe now, why are they not winning the second tier European tournament? Well, to exactly, play devil's yes. advocate on the top eight thing, like because we've sort of gotten away from that conversation just because of the way the European Cup's been you know, yes. this year. But if you're talking about teams that ordinarily you would expect to be in that quarter, or sorry, that you would see as it being seeing it as a disappointment if they didn't make it. Then you've got La Rochelle, you've got Toulouse, you've got Racing, you've got Claremont, you've got Exeter, you've got Bristol, you've got Leinster, 
and in ordinary ordinary circumstances, they would probably still see themselves as at least the third best team in England. You've got Saracens, like that's it right there. Yeah, and then you've got you know Monster, I mean? and Monster the, competing with Ulster. Yeah, and then Monster and Ulster. So yeah, they, they I mean they probably haven't a right to expect to be in the quarterfinals preseason. It's all going to depend on the draw, as it, I think it has done in the past two years. I think what, yeah, what Stephen was alluding to, I don't think they've got a right to think that there'll be a better team than Lanster either. So it is hard when you're looking at it in that way to, if you're only going to use silver as a yardstick, but everything's skewed this year because of the Challenge Cup and because of having that opportunity. But again, I suppose to look at the season as a whole, the issue that more optimistic Ulster fans will throw at you is, well, they won 14 out of their 16 games in the Pro 14 or Pro 12, whatever. But I suppose more cynical <laughs> fans would point out that they didn't really have any games that they should have lost. Yeah. You know, that the away win to Connacht was really their most impressive Pro 14 win of the season. They lost the two games that mattered. Fair enough. Red card, whatever, in the home game against Leinster. But I think you're right, Jonathan. I mean, the Pro 14 or Pro 12 and we've talked about this before, it wasn't as competitive as it had been in the past. And if you look at Ulster's performance and at 14 wins out of 16, it's a pretty good return in any, in any year. The two games they lost, well, they were to Leinster, nothing new there. But then when it came to the Challenge Cup, you were playing, okay, Harlequins didn't field the side that they had been playing in the Premiership, which had put them in the mix for the playoffs. But if you look at their performances in England, aside from Leicester, where they did dominate for a period... They stepped up to the mark in Europe, and that is probably a big plus in a way, even if they didn't win the competition or have the chance to win the competition by getting to the final. And you're right in what you're saying. When you, when you do actually, after I had thought about the top eight in Europe again, I kind of, right enough, you know, Ulster might be stretched to be the automatic the automatic eight again, which is that. Well, I, sp- I suppose you know. Saracens are the outlier, aren't they? So you can yes. discount yes. them because they're yeah. not going to be in yes. next year anyway. So then there's seven, and it's really like, Ulster, Munster, I think both probably think that they're the eighth best team there, I would guess. I think for, for me, the frustration is you get whenever you break it down into the into the different categories that I mentioned, this season has undoubtedly been a positive in creating depth because I think you've seen a lot more players coming through and you've seen a lot more guys being entrusted with game time in previous seasons. Guys like Izzichikwu, McCann, McElroy, Moxham coming through as well. But... The issue is the top end progression hasn't been there. So you haven't seen the the so-called first 15 taking it to the next level that I think you probably wanted. So while in the Pro 14, you win 14 out of 16 games, that, that can be put down to squad depth and being able to rotate better than other teams and being able to keep guys fresh and coping with your losses. But whenever it came to the Gloucester game, they couldn't get it done. The Toulouse game at home, they couldn't get it done. Uh, Leicester away, they couldn't get it done. And the two Leinster games, they couldn't get it done. So that's that's why it's a really frustrating season to look back on. It's not even done yet because we still have the Rainbow Cup to come, of course. Uh, so You're mad about the Rainbow trying, Cup. Stop though. trying to sell the Rainbow <laughs> Cup, will you? <laughs> I'm, ju- I'm just saying the season by way of games isn't over. I couldn't care less whether they win it or not. But, <laughs> but from my perspective, like if you look at the different facets of the season there are positives to take in one degree but not too many to take from another degree and that that's why this season just falls right smack dab in the middle of 
it's not a negative season, but it's not a positive season either. Yeah, I think you're right, Adam. I mean, the Gloucester game away, that was a game Ulster should have won. You know, there's no doubt about that. To lose at home, you were kind of thinking, well, you know, there's a potential they could win that game, and they didn't. And they probably should have won that game at home that time, but didn't. Um, and then the Leinster, you know, the first time they met Leinster, you kind of thought, I was actually confident that they could turn Leinster over that time. Um, and then the red card kind of skewed that game, but you never really got a true reading of how it was going to be. But then they played Leinster again, and then Leinster. And as you say, if you pick out the key, the key games of this nine-month season that we've had so far, they fell up, they came up short when it really, really mattered. You know. And well, that's why I think they'll probably, you know, they would probably take exception to that characterization of the season. But it is true, like Toulouse, yeah. Gloucester, Leinster, Leinster, Leicester. Northampton, those were the season's six most important games. Yes. And they lost five of them. So that yeah. feeds back into what Adam said about the idea that you probably haven't seen the progression from the first 15 that you would have wanted. Because, But I suppose the flip side to that is, in fairness, you haven't seen the first 15 an awful lot because mm-hmm. of the international windows. So while Ulster had a very settled first 15 team, I think under those first two years of Dan McFarland, the idea that that's now changing. So it's like whenever Luke Marshall and James Shum are both fit, who's the 13? You know, if Stuart Murray continues to progress, can he put pressure on Stuart McCloskey? Is Ethan McElroy and Will Addison, Jacob Stockdale, Robert Balakun and Mike Lowry, how do you get those five guys into what's going to be four positions in the team unless you switch... Laurie um, and focus him on him at 10. But I think the frustrating thing for Ulster possibly going into next season is going to be that idea that it's going to be hard for them to get an awful lot better yeah. than they were this year. Like they could win, say, three of those big six games, but still be in a position where they're not going to be quite good enough to win silverware. There'll be more big games as well, because that's going to be the good thing about the South African sides coming in. Hopefully, touch wood, you're going to get more regular yardsticks of where the team is at. Whereas a lot of those Pro 14 games did not feel like yardsticks because you couldn't take anything about how likely Ulster were to beat La Rochelle out of the fact that they scored seven tries or whatever it was, you know, away to one of the Scottish sides because it was such a shell of what the Scottish sides had been during those international windows. But I think it's finding a way to build on what they have with that sustainable base. But it will also be finding a way to realise that while you're never going to have the budget of La Rochelle and their 26 million euros a year or whatever, and you're never going to have the same amount of young players coming through your academy as Leinster do. Where, like, where do you find the money to bridge that gap in buy, buying in I mean, this was essentially the model that Ulster decided upon whenever Mike Greed went out to get David Humphreys to recruit foreign players, and you end up with Muller, Afoa, Pinar, and Pedri Vandenberg. You know, of having three or four brilliant imports, and it's finding that money, and it, you know, is it going down that monster route and exploring the possibility of getting outside investment, or? Because you don't want to take the money away from the more sustainable avenues. Like if, say, as an example, you're putting money into a development officer who's going to hopefully benefit the provincial pathway for years and years and years. Like 
and it's made, it's balancing that up. And I suppose we've seen Ulster teams that felt like while they didn't win silverware, they got that balance right. But just fiscally, are we going to be able to see an Ulster team like that in the future? Yeah, you're right. And I know there was some talk about non-Irish. I mean, their players are going, opening up some non-Irish places. But I'm just wondering how the impact of the South Africans coming into the Pro 14 or Pro 16 will impact on, are we able to get good overseas quality players coming from South Africa as we used to? Because the best of them are going to be play, playing against us now. And there's no point in dipping down low and wasting money maybe on a player that's on the periphery there. Will we get a Kiwi? Will we get a Wallaby? It's a, it's a very difficult balance and maybe Ulster have to rethink how they look to recruit. And I think you're right, Jonathan. I think we need to be looking at our own talent and, and spending money on a development officer is probably more advantageous to Ulster in the mm. long run and Irish rugby, obviously. Could see is probably the perfect example of a player that whenever he was playing was absolutely worth the money, despite being their best paid player, if you know what I mean. Yeah. yeah. So you're talking about, say, somebody that is in, would be in a match day 23 or even, a, say, a World Cup squad of 31, as it was 33, as it will be, for one of the big nations. Because how many of those players do Ulster actually have? You know, yeah. Stockdale, Henderson went to the World Cup with Ireland the last time around, could see it probably would have done through injury. So if you can add a player of that quality, then you're improving your squad massively. Obviously, an awful lot of... You have to view everything next season and until crowds come back through the lens of decreased revenue. But when fans are back and when this supposed injection of television money comes from the South Africans joining, it's how you spend your money. And are we going to see another superstar at Ulster? Because it's not that long ago since they had three. Like we mentioned the sort of Heineken Cup team of having four world, yeah, world-class imports. But like, it's not that long ago that Ulster had Peter Ty could see you and Pinar on the books at the same time. But <laughs> now it almost feels a world away, you know? Um so it's just, it's it's very difficult to bridge that gap. And just while we compare everything to Leinster, it's also worth noting that Leinster are having their own week of gnashing of teeth and wringing of hands at the minute because, you know, they're like looking at it. Well, that's three years in a row we've come up against um, a team that we just haven't had an answer for in Saracens twice and La Rochelle. So the, the mood of the not even just the media, but the conversation around Leinster at the minute is actually very similar to Ulster. It's just that a different, the stakes are different. Well, gents, I'm afraid that's all we've got time for this week. Uh, thank you very much for your company to Richard in England. Hopefully we'll get to see you again very soon now that your travails following Ulster have unfortunately come to an end for this season. Yeah, no, I, I enjoyed me. We run there. Um, it was great. Um, really good to be on with you guys today. Good to see you. Jonathan Bradley, thank you very much. Cheers, lads. Thank you very much. Thank you very much to all of you guys for asking your questions. Blown away by the responses we had this week. Um, thank you very much for listening. Uh, we will see you all next week when we look back on the Munster Rainbow Cup game that apparently nobody cares about but me. Um, and then we'll look ahead to Leinster as well. Thanks very much for listening. All the best. Stay safe.